You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today we're going to be diving into the life and times of Dr. Fazna Ahmadi. Fazna is a scientist, entrepreneur, and biomedical engineer who has spent the last decade focused on the challenge of the bionic voice. Since graduating from the University of Tehran with a Master's of Electrical and Communications Engineering, Fazna has worked her way across the world, including a PhD in Singapore and postdoctoral fellowships in Japan and Australia. Most recently, Dr. Ahmadi was a fellow at the University of Western Sydney, perfecting a technology that would ultimately underpin one of the university's first spin-out companies, Laronix. Now the founder and CEO of this company, Fazana is helping to bring bionic prosthetics to the world and give laryngectomy patients the opportunity to speak naturally once again. Dr. Fazana Ahmadi, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Fazana, you're a scientist, an entrepreneur, a CEO, and a biomedical engineer. Which of these titles comes first in your mind when you're introducing yourself? Well, I guess for me, at heart, I'm a biomedical engineer that loves helping people with new technologies. But through my journey in the university, I turned out to be a scientist, and then afterwards, uh, because I have also worked in the industry, I decided to learn how to be a good CEO, which was a very interesting experience for a scientist, translating what you have learned in science into a viable business. So I would say I'm a scientist who tries to be a very good CEO. <laughs> Great. And speaking of you being a CEO, you are leading a company called Laronix. Could you give us a brief overview about that project and your technology? Yeah, Laronix is a spin-out of Western Sydney University uh, with the mission of bringing the gift of natural voice for, to people who need it most. We are specialized in voice cloning, and we have changed that framework for the first time to generate a natural voice for people who have lost their larynx due to cancer. These people are mostly called laryngectomy patients. Wonderful. And we'll definitely get back to your engineering work and Laronix in a second. But can we also get a sense of your personal roots? You were born in Esfahan, which is one of Iran's largest and oldest cities. On the one hand, you were surrounded by beautiful buildings and some incredible scientific pedigree of, of Persia and Iran. But you also grew up in the aftermath of the Iranian Revolution with a conservative government, you know, regional conflicts and economic sanctions. What was your memory of growing up in this heady mix of ancient culture and modern upheaval? (laughs) That's an excellent question. Um, You know, um, human nature is very interesting. And unless you have actually lived in that environment, you couldn't imagine how it works. Um, Iranian parents are wonderful in terms of protecting their children from whatever is happening in that environment. So Yes, I was born in the war and during the war was my childhood. Iranian government was not particularly good in terms of human rights and so, but but in our core family, we didn't notice any of that. As far as I remember, my dad was always, even when I was 10 years old, he was always asking me, when are you going to Stanford? You will do such and such. 
And I didn't know what Stanford is at the time. So that sort of perfectionist attitude towards science is very deeply rooted in that culture and in, 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 in the families. So children get to the habit of minding their own business and studying. Um, and I think, I think the pressure was mostly on my family and my parents because we didn't feel, to be honest, we didn't feel most of that pressure till very late when I was a like, university student. I just started to realize what's happening around us, which led to, uh, to us fleeing the country in the end, yeah. So, I mean, speaking of your university education, you obviously gravitated towards science and engineering. You studied at the University of Tehran and ultimately achieved a master's in electrical and communications engineering. You said your dad was kind of an inspiration there. Were there other teachers that kind of led you into a career in STEM or was that something quite innate to you? Yes, um, well, we had to, far in the beginning of our high school, we had to choose between mathematics and bio it was a like a two disciplines completely different so choosing one meant, meant that you are leaving the other one for the rest of your life and we had some amazing teachers there that sort of made you fall in love with both so i started mathematics and then slowly over the course of 10 years of my bachelor master and phd moved myself back to bio <laughs> getting to biomedical engineering um I also have to say, like, there are, there were also some amazing managers in Iran that very effectively worked with the non-functional infrastructure of the government to deliver good work. I also learned a lot from those people uh, when I was working in the industry. Yeah, I did want to ask about your early industry experience, because almost immediately out of university, you got a pretty senior role managing commercial R&D for a company called Barson EPCM. Could you tell us, I guess, how you scored that that job and what it taught you to be managing R&D projects commercially at such an early point in your career? Yeah, um, straight out of my master's. Yeah, I mean, it's because many, many talented people had left Iran. When you were a fresh graduate, there were actually positions that you could directly go to, which were for far more senior people. So I started my day one job as an R&D project manager and I had zero experience. So I had to very quickly learn from everyone around me how they were managing their portfolio. And uh, that job was actually one of the jobs that I absolutely loved because it gave me a very good understanding of how to do a research in an industrial setting with the time and budget limits of industry putting the project into perspective, breaking the work into feasible modules, and then have an oversight around everything that is, is in execution, like a continuous management of time and budget uh, across the whole project, something that is normally overlooked in the in the university. Uh, so for all of the projects that, that we had at the time, we managed to deliver all of them successfully. Um, I think that perhaps my sort of success with solving the problem of human voice loss has roots into that experience because I stepped out of the university after my master's and then I learned how you can actually find quick answers to some of the pressing problems that we had. But then after three years of doing that, I felt a void inside me as if I wanted to help people. And then I did a lot of soul searching and I realized that I want to go back to university and then get back to research. And I had an application sent to the Nanyang University of Singapore, which is right now one of the top 40 universities globally. And interestingly, 
the topic of my research at the time was <laughs> bionics voice generating voice for laryngectomy people. During my PhD, I basically started following everyone else as you do, following the literature. But like there has been like a problem with this field of research for, for 30 years. We couldn't actually find a solution to this. We, we proposed some alternatives, but most of them were long-term solutions. Then I was really frustrated with this problem. And uh, around the same time, patient emailed our group and said, I'm a singer and my voice is my life and I'm going to lose my voice because of this condition. And can you help me? And our honest answer was like probably in 20 years. And it bothered me very much. I just, I remember I couldn't sleep for three nights and what was bothering me was like, we ignore so many problems in the world because we think this is not my field, but this is my field. And I haven't been able to put a device on a table and say, yes, you can talk with this device. So my PhD finished with some general frameworks of what can be done for this, but still it, I wasn't persuaded that we have done enough. And I came to Australia basically to find a solution. So by 2012, Fasana had completed her PhD and learned a great deal about AI and voice cloning, yet there was still something missing. For Dr. Amadi, neither her industry role nor her academic one had truly allowed her to help people in need. And in particular, she learned that a theoretical framework for a bionic voice system was never going to be enough to help the actual laryngectomy patients who needed it. Someone would have to turn the idea into a usable technology. With this front of mind, Dr. Amadi came to Australia, taking up a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Sydney, where she would begin building the networks and resources required to bring the bionic voice to the world. I asked Fazna what drew her to Australia and how her time at Sydney University helped shape the bionic voice. Initially, it was a bit hard to introduce the research to the Australian uh, ecosystem because no one was working on it here. And we started the work basically knowing what you should not do uh, in this problem, which, which in science sometimes is very valuable. Um, and what we did at the University of Sydney was an extensive survey of what has everyone done to, to, to come to a sort of a conclusion, like a very rigid conclusion that these are the things that you have to throw away and these are the things that you have to keep. Um, and that survey was very helpful. My supervisor at the time, I remember one day I told him that I have basically read all of the papers about this. And he said, have you looked into the literature from China? And um, I hadn't. <laughs> so I went back, I looked at the literature from China, and then we realized that there is something that we haven't studied, and that might actually be the solution. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's often a narrative in the West that China is mostly an IP copycat. And <laughs> that, you know, that there's not a lot of new science there, but that has definitely been changing. China's invested a lot into their universities. So so what did you find in Chinese literature that, that wasn't in Western literature? Um, so so just to step back, people that we're talking about, laryngectomy, they breathe through their neck and they have lost their vocal folds entirely due to cancer, but they can move their face and lips muscles. In the Western culture and then basically the rest of the world, what these people use made as a technology is the electrolarynx. It's a handheld device placed on the neck that sounds like a robot that you probably have seen. And the other one is uh, an indwelling voice process. It, it, it gives a better voice, but 
still unnatural and it's pretty expensive. Now, what was interesting that in China, there is an alternative solution called the pneumatic artificial larynx or the PAL. And this is a very, very old school device uh, that was basically going to be forgotten. It's a mechanical version of human vocal folds. They put one end on the neck and then it has a tube that goes to the mouth. And to our surprise, it actually generated a very good voice and it was also even capable of generating tonal languages. For someone who has been frustrated to find an answer for this for like five years, I just saw human larynx without any nerves outside the body and generating a voice that is already as good as the natural human larynx. So it immediately simplified the problem in two steps. First of all, you don't need nerve signal to generate a natural voice for people. And second, all you need is respiration. And the rest, you can basically build a model, uh, an AI model, for example, to, mim to mimic the performance of this simple device. So that was when we realized that we can actually simplify the problem and uh, develop a technology based on this concept, but in, in a modern language. And it's probably worth mentioning the difference between a tonal and a modal language for the audience. Can you describe those? Yeah, tonal languages generate variations of the intonation that we call pitch between different phonemes. So normally in, in, in non-tonal languages, we, we change intonation just in, in sentence level. For example, we say this is a cat or this is a cat. That is what we do in non-tonal languages. But in tonal languages, this variation inside the word is also important. And Chinese is a tonal language, means that if you can't maintain that tone inside your word, the word is actually mistaken with another word. Uh, so electrolarynx, for example, is completely incapable of generating that tone. But with this device, people were generating intelligible Chinese language only made by respiration changes. Yeah. So I guess this has all happened during your UCID fellowship, but you, you tied in a few other institutions to your work before you founded Laronix. Yes. You, you started a fellowship, a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Western Sydney. Yes. And, and also at Nagoya University in Japan. Correct. Why did you pick these two institutions and, and how did they feed into your development of the artificial voice box? Uh, well, Laronics technology was in fact invented at Western Sydney University. We basically combined our understanding of what, what is the best way of doing this. How can you use respiration to generate an ultra-realistic natural voice for, for these people? Uh, so Western Sydney is actually the home of the technology and we are spinning out of them. And, and then in 2018, we did a first successful preclinical trial of this solution. And that's when I, I actually approached Google at the time. And in those conversations, the Google team actually introduced us to Professor Tomoki Toda. And they said that uh, in terms of cutting edge science, he is the best person that can help you further improve the quality of your voice because he is the world expert in voice cloning. Um, and I was honored that he accepted offer of a collaboration between us. And that was when I went to Japan and I actually worked with him for two years. Yeah. And what was it like in the labs of such an internationally renowned scientist? What were his facilities or the way he approached science fundamentally different from what you had experienced elsewhere? 
Yeah, I, it was an amazing experience in Japan. When, when I went to Nagoya University, I think the first week, I, I went to, to the cafe to get this sandwich. And when I was coming back, a friend of mine told me, you see that gentleman walking? He got the Nobel Prize in microelectronics four years ago. <laughs> so like you feel like you're surrounded in an environment working very hard. But the stress of the work is not much because everyone is very helpful. Speech synthesis is a very hard field of science in terms of mathematics and then modeling and then the AI. Professor Tomoki Toda had a major role in, in guiding the science of this. So I guess that brings us to 2019 when you had completed all of this kind of background fundamental science and done quite a lot of work developing a, a baseline product. It came time that you had to actually spin out this entity to incorporate as a company and take the project forward commercially. I wondered what made you think that this was the right time to transition out of the academic setting and into an entrepreneurial one? Uh, we wanted to basically go for a minimum viable product. And uh, the Australian government had a grant scheme for which it was best for you to have a startup. So we went through a negotiation with Western Sydney and we said, look, the research is, is getting mature. And, and, and at that point, you actually have two choices. One choice is stay in the university and continue obsessing about how you can make the quality of the voice better and better, how you can give each person their own voice. That's one way of thinking. The other way is, while you are doing that, there are people who actually don't have a voice, and these people kept emailing me about when can we have it. And that question had started to really bother me. So we decided to actually make a parallel pathway. It was initially my intention that Laronix would be a parallel uh, entity to, to the work that we were doing at Western. But um, some circumstances happened inside the university and some, some of my senior managers like had, had the attitude of, you should choose, <laughs> do a startup or stay with us. And uh, I chose to, to go with this startup. Yeah, well, there's definitely a few things I'd like to unpick there. And I'll get to the attitude of your managers again in a second. But firstly, you also mentioned about the IP negotiations with the university. And this is obviously a really important part of the spin-out journey. Can you tell us how you approached those negotiations and how you feel about your current agreement with the University of Western Sydney? Well, this is an extremely important question. But first of all, I cannot emphasize enough on the importance of a university's mindset in technology transfer. It, it is, in my feeling, a binary situation. They either want to help or they don't. And if they don't, those negotiations become very painful for scientists. And I had that experience with some of my universities before Western Sydney. For Western Sydney, the general mindset of the technology transfer office ready in Western Sydney was very positive. They wanted to basically help. Like we were one of the first startups of Western. They gave us the flexibility of, to decide when do I want to make that shift. Uh, the negotiations always takes time. I think our negotiation took about one year to basically discuss every details of it. But throughout that negotiations, I was always feeling that I'm at home, the university in general was very, very helpful, and I'm, I'm, I've been always conscious of that. So they basically said, that, let us go with, with a very supportive attitude. 
and yeah, that's how we got our IP. But I had experiences with some universities that the, the negotiations were difficult to a point that we, we just gave up at, at some point for some of those prior technologies. Yeah. And when you're talking about those bad experiences, those bad negotiations with prior technologies, do you mean they're difficult in terms of the complexity of the negotiations? Or do you mean that the universities were asking for quite harsh terms to the license agreement? essentially asking for, for too much money up front. Yeah, both. Uh, sometimes what they ask was not feasible. Uh, my understanding is sometimes Australian universities, not Western Sydney at this example, but sometimes they have a feeling that a researcher with an IP is like someone with a, with a gold mine. And that couldn't be more far from the truth. You are actually, you start with a very niche idea and then you, you go to the pathway of de-risking that. And some universities are, are more mindful of what is available and what's not. If a university is paying for patent costs, they would be in position to, to expect more because they're actually investing. But sometimes it's like neither here nor there. And that puts a, a lot of pressure on a, on a scientist. Um, for us, Western Sydney made it very reasonable and straightforward, and we appreciate that. Well, well, great, Fasner, and good to hear that the bureaucratic pathways weren't too painful for you. Um, I did want to pick up on that other thread that you mentioned, which was that after you had negotiated your license and Laronics was a going concern, your supervisors, your academic supervisors within the university, started to push back on your duality of being both a researcher and an entrepreneur, and ultimately you were forced to pick can you explain what that environment was like and what sort of pushback you were receiving? Um, well, that was unfortunate. I, I just don't want to pin that on, on Western Sydney because, to be honest, I had a fantastic experience. But yeah, there was a senior manager in, in our department that was not part of the IP negotiation, but they didn't also like the concept of a researcher taking the IP out in a startup, which is very interesting. I mean, I actually was very surprised when I heard that because I thought that I would be at least encouraged. Um, but yeah, I was invited to a very disappointing meeting and they told me that because you want to make a business out of our research, then uh, then we wouldn't be able to extend your work contract. And um, I, I felt that they had taken the whole concept personally, but it wasn't my intention. I, I, I very simply just wanted to go and help people with this technology. That was when I, uh, why I had left uh, industry to come to the university. So we parted amicably, but later on I sort of wrote back to the university and said that many universities put the number of their startups on their homepage. And it's unfortunate that some people still in, in, in Australian universities struggle to embrace that. And I hope that changes in future. Um, like one person doesn't rep represent the whole uh, the whole institution and the, the whole institution of Western Sydney has been excellent in my point of view. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's move on from politics now and get back to the technology. You've mentioned a few elements that have fed into the Laronics system, including your Chinese uh, discovery. But could you could you tell us now kind of how the Laronics process and prosthesis works? Yep. Uh, so so as I said, there has been an old pneumatic artificial larynx. Pneumatic artificial larynx is indeed a human larynx made very simple. It has actually like 
something like a vocal fold that vibrates inside it. And as 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 you remember, I, I said that our patients breathe through the neck, so it's connected to the to the respiration on the neck. It generates voice, but instead of going inside the throat, it goes from the lip side. But the vocal tract doesn't matter really. Uh, wherever you excite vocal tract, you can still get voice. In essence, it's a very very simple model of human vocal folds, and that's what makes it very interesting because now you can model that. So what we have been doing last five years is providing a model that generates the same performance in an electronic device. In doing so, we are also effectively modeling human vocal folds without the nerve components. We basically want to know when respiration goes in and the vocal folds as a black box does a function and generates the voice, how can we train an algorithm that gets respiration as an input and then generates the same natural voice as an output? And then after that, there came a third question, which is how fast can we do it? Because voice generation is one of the fastest movements of human body. Like when you're talking about a bionic arm, your movement is in the range of seconds, but in a bionic voice, you really need to make decision about what generating voice in milliseconds, which is a thousand times faster. So, so that's also an external complexity of this that we had to manage. Well, Fasner, maybe that's a good time for us to take a short break from our interview to hear a clip of the Laronix voice box in action. These samples both come from one of your early trial patients by the name of John. And the first one is of him using an existing technology, an electrolarynx. So let's listen to that first. I'm a robotic. So that was John on the electrolarynx, and by his own admission, he was sounding robotic. Let's try now with the Laronix device instead. My name is John, and I'm from New York, and I hope you have a nice day. Bye-bye. So as John's experience shows, there is definitely the capacity for the Laronix device to improve the voice of some laryngectomy patients. But Laronix is not the only medical technology company eyeing this space. As well as the traditional electrolarynx manufacturers working to improve their products, there are other companies like Atos Medical delivering indwelling prostheses and surgical options, allowing patients to speak directly through their throat. I asked Fasner where Laronix sits among this competitive landscape and who are likely to be the early adopters for her technology. Uh, well, that, that's an excellent question. Look, in terms of voice quality, Laronix is superior to the electrolarynx. The indwelling prosthesis generates a more robust voice. Some, some people using the indwelling process, they, they have a very acceptable voice, but it's placing a plastic valve inside an open wound in the throat which gets infectious, so it has side effects. Uh, we, we speculate that Laronix device would be a very convenient replacement for electrolarynx, and there is a very strong market traction in that domain. Like people who use electrolarynx, they've been very interested. We have a very strong expression of interest from those people. And we have had dialogues with Atos Medical as the global market leader that our solution is initially an addition to the existing offering as basically third alternative. But 
especially because Electoral Alliance has been a very old school, we might be anticipated we, we could easily sort of replace that with this. But in terms of the market share between this and the, the medical gold standard, we have left that to uh, when we finish our clinical trials in, in Australia and overseas. Yeah. Yeah, look, and I mean, speaking of clinical trials and commercial development, obviously this becomes an expensive process when you're, you've left the academic world, but you're still pre-revenue in terms of your business. That obviously requires you to bring in funding from investors, from angel investors or from venture capital funds, from friends and family. Can you walk us through what your experience has been like pitching to these groups and bringing in funding as a scientist turned entrepreneur? <laughs> um, well, the first important thing that we didn't know and is that you, you obviously need training um, and there are a lot of good training programs. So if anyone is actually thinking of founding a business as science, I would strongly recommend that use one of those excellent training programs, accelerators, for example. We were with um, the CSIRO and program. They teach you how to translate your thinking from a science to, to a practice mindset. Without that, it's actually almost impossible to raise funding in industrial terms. Uh, but when, once you get that training, a couple of insights that we had was that Australian startup ecosystem is very risk averse. Our first um, expressions of interest from early stage VCs came actually from Canada and US, not from Australia, because, because most medical devices take a lot of time to proceed to the clinical trials and regulatory approvals and reimbursement. So, we were told by a very good VC in Australia, who were very helpful, by the way, with advice, but they said, we might have your main chances overseas in terms of venture capital funding, um, which is why we went back to angels. I sort of feel that an early stage medtech startup has a better chance being supported by angels in Australia. Uh, the dialogue that we had was very meaningful, and we finally managed to close our seed round through Australian angels, yeah. Well, great, Fasner, and congratulations on closing your seed round. It's a big step. You mentioned right at the start of this interview that you've also been working hard on improving your skills as a CEO. I wonder if you can just tell us from your perspective what those skills are and kind of how you have changed to become a better leader. Well, well actually a lot. As I said, I, I used to be a manager in Iran and the methods have fundamentally changed. We used to manage people, but but in leadership, as you know, is very different. You you need to learn to make people feel aligned, and then uh, make people also feel that they are growing in this uh, business. They are learning things uh, while you also maintain the limited budget and time frames of a lean startup. So so yeah, it has been a very steep learning curve in terms of the different dialogues that you have with investors the different dialogue that we ha you have with your design team, the different dialogue that you have with your clinical partners. Um, we continue to, to basically manage the portfolio, not micromanage it. And we have had some uh, training from ELAB and CSR on program that has been very helpful. Um, but I, I, I also have, uh, I am still con continuing to register to training courses. So it's not something that you can say that you have learned it all. You have to continue to update your, your knowledge on this domain, yeah. Well, great to hear you are continuing to learn, Fasner, and I'm sure that means that there is a long and productive future ahead for Laronix. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating discussion. If I can, I'd like to leave on one question, which we've been asking all our guests through the 2021 season, 
And that is, if you could give one piece of advice to an entrepreneur or a researcher who's considering this journey in science translation, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I would say absolutely do it. I mean, if you feel that you can make a change in the world, I guess that the choice of excellent science and then science translation to, to something that helps people is, is sort of a personal choice. But but if you really have a passion about changing people's lives with your technology, then go for it. Australian startup ecosystem it is, in my view, progressing positively. Um, there are a lot of support uh, for women, for example, that, that are normally left out. Previous founders are very useful. I, I would strongly recommend reaching out to people who have founded the technology like one or two years prior to you because their experience is very recent. Um, when we started Laronix initially back in 2019, we were honestly looking for funding to develop the technology, but, but our journey changed to seeking advice to improve the portfolio uh, because the funding will, will come after that. I would strongly recommend that attitude from the scientists, but I also, if I may, like, quite humbly um, suggest that I also want to have a word with Australian universities to start making it easier for their scientists to move to the technology development. Um, it's a big shift for a scientist. It sometimes means putting your academic career on hold and going to like sort of an entrepreneurial journey, which is not necessarily an easy life. But but it's good for university to be aware of that uh, transition because I assume when a research grows, it's like a baby coming to adulthood and the university has to have some idea of what happens when the research gets here and then have that sort of conversation with their researchers to, to make a mutual decision that is accepted by everybody. Well, that's a great spot for us to end, Fasna. Thank you so much for your time, and I hope you enjoyed being part of the Lab Notes podcast. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Thanks for having me, Liam. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organizations, along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.